Welcome to the Engaging Culture Podcast, presented by Bridgeway Christian Church. I'm Brian Kiley, Bridgeway's Director of Connections. In today's episode, my co-host, Pastor Lance Hahn, and I are joined by our special guest, Kurt Lewis, Director of World Relief Sacramento. World Relief works to empower the local church to serve the most vulnerable. In today's episode, the three of us will be talking about World Relief's work advocating for refugees and assisting in their resettlement, and we will talk about how to think through the current world refugee crisis through the lens of Scripture. We will also spend some time talking about recent events in Charlottesville, Virginia, and how Christians can and should respond to racism. All of that and more on this episode of Engaging Culture. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Engaging Culture. I'm joined by Lance Hahn, freshly back from Uganda. Boom. Yeah. Boom. Whoa. My, uh, my, my my volume is crazy. Sorry about that. volume is you crazy. You went into a trash can sound, and uh, yeah. so I'm just letting you guys know. I don't know what just happened there, but All right. now I hear myself really po- powerful. Well, your silky smooth voice is nice oh, and loud. Oh, so. thank you. It's beautiful. Glad Stay you're thirsty, wow. my friend. Glad you're, <laughs> okay, um, Glad you're with us. Nothing to do with it. Yes, I'm back from Uganda. Now I can't even really hear you. That's all right. All right. That's almost encouraging. That's probably better, frankly. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. our other uh, guest today, Kurt Lewis, Director of World Relief. All right. Uh, glad to have you with us. You it's are our with you. first non-Bridgeway wow. staff wow. member guest. Dang. So don't screw this <laughs> don't up for the rest up. of them. Yeah. 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 I'm sorry for everyone but, who uh, will follow me. <laughs> you know, I have to point this out just yep. for everyone. I like Kurt Lewis for a variety of reasons. <laughs> One of the reasons is he's super smart. I'll talk about him as if he's not in the room. He's super smart and he's super nice and he's passionate. Mm. He is I love those things about him. I think that he is the right dude for the right job, and I'm so thankful to have you uh, here. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Man, couldn't agree word. more. Sometimes you only hear good words from your mom or your wife. I just wanted to be one other one person the, in your yeah, life. Thank you. you mom, wife, the, and Lance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the trifecta of what could be, positive voices. Yes. What could be better? So, yeah, obviously I echo all of that as well, and a uh, huge fan of the work that you do, and I'm just oh, absolutely thrilled that uh, that our listeners can, can hear from you uh, today, and we're going to talk a lot about kind of the the refugee crisis and how we can think through that biblically and scripturally. Uh, But to start off, the heart of this show is to be able to plan for different episodes, and we have episodes planned into the future and all that, but we also want to be able to address issues that happen kind of in the moment. And obviously, this last weekend was significant in our country in light of some uh, some things that happened in Charlottesville, Virginia, with uh, white supremacist protests and uh, marches and things of that nature. There was a uh, there was a really good article by Ed Stetzer. And in a minute, I'll drop the link into the comment section of our Facebook live broadcast so that uh, those who are interested can take a look. But here's what he says describing white supremacy, uh, and I'll quote this directly. He says, it's an abomination to all that we stand for, and it must be condemned on every level of leadership in the church. There's no room for waffling. We cannot sit in silence hoping this will pass. And from my observation, there seems like there's been an uptick in kind of overtly racist behavior recently. I'm not so naive as to think it didn't exist Previously, but it seems like recently there's been an uptick. And the point of this discussion is not to assign blame or to even ask the question, okay, what do we, you know, what figures do we blame for this or whatever? That's not the point. The question that I want to ask and that I'd love to hear from the two of you is how can and should the church respond to this sort of racism? Lance, we'll start with you. Why don't you go ahead? Yeah. I, so 
Okay, now I'm gonna try to sound intelligent by uh, by quoting from Albert Moeller, right? Because we we had some it's articles good. that we were talking about that. Um, and if you don't know who he is, um, he's smarter than all of us. All right, moving on. True, true. Um, he said this, a claim of white superiority is not merely wrong and not merely deadly. It is a denial of the glory of God in creating humanity, every single human being in his image. A claim of racial superiority denies our common humanity, our common sinfulness, and our common salvation through faith in Christ and God's purpose to create a common new humanity in Christ. You cannot preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and hold to any notion of racial superiority. It is impossible. Mm, yep. Bam. So, so how do we need to respond? First of all, we need to be very clear that racial superiority is unacceptable yep. in Scripture, in our lives in our nation or anywhere around us. And, and I think that probably right off the bat, if somebody clicks on the podcast or listening to this, they're going to be like, I thought you guys were talking about refugees. Mm -hmm. What does this have to do with white supremacy? And obviously we'll get into that a little bit, but underlying so much of what we end up talking about in this nation, whether we get into immigration discussions or we get into refugee discussions or we get into um, a lot of the political things, um, the wall or this or that, or what does it mean to make America great again, that kind of concept, right? We end up getting into these things and underlying an awful lot of it is racial superiority. Yeah. And and I just, you know, I want to go right from the get-go in condemnation of that. Yeah. The idea of racial superiority is absolutely unacceptable. Yeah. And I think the church needs to be loud about it. And I because there there's not there's not another side. <laughs> I mean, there's another side into all the issues we're about to talk about, but when it comes to racial superiority, there's not another side that that we need to debate about, like going, well, you know what? Yeah, kind of God thinks there's racial superiority. No, he doesn't. Nope. So anyway, those are my initial thoughts. Kurt, what yeah. do you think? I was just thinking of um, uh, the chapter from C.S. Lewis's um, classic work, Mere Christianity, uh, his chapter on the great, the great sin or the greatest sin. Um, being pride. Yeah. And, uh, it's good. and it's interesting that you could almost uh, summarize any, any attempt. Uh, and and I, this, that's the one thing that all three of us have in common is uh, as, as well as everybody who's listened, we've all probably, we've not probably, we've all at times um, uh, attempted to put ourselves in a position of superiority Absolutely, over somebody yeah. else. It's um, one of the most fundamental um, uh, trademarks of sin, uh, of a rebellion against God's order of love for him and for neighbor. Uh, and, uh, and, and so there isn't, there isn't any gray territory in, in that conversation. Uh, when we talk about racism, or it could be ethnocentrism, because that relates a lot to when we start talking about immigrants and refugees. Any any kind of expression in which you and I or others place ourselves uh, in a position of inherent um, inherently worthy, uh, it's like assumed worthiness yeah. uh, of position or power over another person, um, we're, we're committing idolatry. It's it's at its root. It's idolatry. It's a self self idolatry, and and you're right. And I agree with Albert Moeller and so many others. It's been encouraging to hear a number of, of leading Christian voices uh, very strongly over this last weekend uh, speak to that. And I think that was encouraging. Uh, and and it needs to be heeded. That warning is is very serious. 
Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. Um, I, I, I've done a lot of um, study in racism and the African-American condition in America and, and, and things like that. And really, when you get back to it, as I was doing a lot of the tracings of slavery in America, you obviously have to jump to the slavery that was prior to that. And um, when I was over in Uganda, they did a whole demonstration of slavery, um, like a skit that the kids did at the grand opening. And it was slavery in Africa on Africans. And it was showing that if you keep tracing it back, you ultimately have selfishness and pride domineering over another group. No matter where it is, it's been going since the beginning of time. Cain killed Abel because he was able to do it. You understand what I'm saying? And he had this superiority. I should be here. You should not be here. And he killed him. It was in the first family. Craziness. Yeah, absolutely. You look at scripture, particularly I think about the book of Revelation. And I saw some people posting about this online and everything. And it talks about every tribe, tongue, and nation. And how the notion of racial superiority is so against that and is the that's the opposite of heaven. It is antithetical. I think one of you used that word. I mean, just the complete opposite of what heaven is going to be like, of what the kingdom is like, of what Jesus is seeking to build. And and just like I think there are time and this is interesting. We were joking about this before we came on that here we are three Caucasian guys talking about racism. But there's a sense awkward. in which yeah, yeah, awkward, right? There's a sense in which if we're all Christ followers here and when Christians are engaging in things that are completely contrary to the way of Jesus, we as Christians have a responsibility and not that we need to be speaking up over every little thing, but when there's overt stuff, we need to say, hey, listen, this isn't Jesus. Like this is not the way of Jesus. And I think as even though we're not white supremacists, obviously. We like I feel like almost as Caucasian men, we have a particular responsibility to speak out and say, this does not represent us. This does not represent certainly our faith. This doesn't represent our perspective. So people say, oh, well, this is happening. Lots of people are are racist and all that. Why are we singling this out? And I'd say, well, because it's people that are that are that are that look like us. And we need to say, no, 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 this is this is wrong. And and I guess that's that's how I always want to be, is rather than saying, oh, well, lots of other people are doing bad stuff too. Man, what what's going on in people that are like us? And and can we be a positive voice in the midst of that kind of negativity? When the guy from uh, Verity Baptist Church in Sacramento um, launched that tirade against the LGBTQ community. Yep. And he was like, they should all be murdered and all that stuff. Um, City Pastors Fellowship, we, uh, our group of pastors, we all got together and we issued a statement yeah. because we were going, because the rest of the world who's not involved in it is looking over and going, seriously, is that what all churches think? Yeah. And you had to clarify, no, I know that he had a title called pastor and he has a thing called a church, but his pastor and church is very different from the rest of us that are pastors of churches. He does not represent us, and we may look similar on the outside, but we are very, very different on the inside. So we had to issue out a public, clear statement, whoa, that guy's not with us. That is not in our camp. And so in the same way, I think with this, as white males, it does look a lot like us, and you have to go, oh, I understand. On the outside, there's an awful lot of stuff that looks the same. We're just letting you know that does not represent us. That is not us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I think the, 
you know, I, I've always admired one of the things I admire the most uh, um, is when individuals have the ability to self-critique. And I think you can do that on an individual level, but you also need to do it on a community level. Yeah. And you recognize uh, different socioeconomic racial groups that all of a sudden you realize I'm kind of a part of this group. Uh, whether I was born into it, whether whatever it happens, I'm a part of this group. Right. And then you, you start to reflect upon uh, the complexities um, related to that. The ability to to self-critique and identify um, areas of reform uh, is it's an it's an invaluable voice, especially when you can have that voice when you're part of a majority and you're a minority within that challenging your majority. Um, that takes some strength and courage. It's it's second only to minorities themselves. Right. So they are the, the you know the mi- minorities uh, are are the true heroes and champions yeah. mm-hmm. and the voices that need to be heeded the most. Um, but I I think it's absolutely essential that um, there are other voices that are a part of the majority that are saying, hey, listen, from my vantage point as a part of this majority culture group. This is correct. We need to we need to address this. We need to reflect upon this. Right. So, yeah. Man, sure. That's so good. So we just wanted to start out the episode by making it clear where Bridgeway stands. We want to join. I mean, so many other churches in the Sacramento area and around the world are speaking out uh, against racism. Just absolutely uh, not what we're about, and 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 completely contrary uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Kurt, we. Uh, we asked you here not to talk about that, although perhaps we should have because you had obviously great thoughts about it. But uh, Bridgeway has partnered with your organization, World Relief, for a long time. Uh, we're obviously big fans of the work that you do. A number of folks who call Bridgeway home volunteer and serve with World Relief. And the work that uh, that you do, obviously, is uh, to equip the church to serve the most vulnerable. And, and one of the ways you do that is uh, advocating for and serving refugees. And the refugee situation is one where there's lots of information, lots of misinformation. So that's what we want to talk about. Can we start out just by maybe having you share with our listeners a little bit of your own journey to get to where you are today and a little bit of your heart for for serving the vulnerable and particularly serving refugees? Sure. Uh, and just want to say, first of all, appreciate um, the leadership of, of uh, here at Bridgeway in pressing in and leaning into an issue that especially the last couple of years, I don't even like, I don't like using the word issue, but uh, something that has become very polarizing, very emotional, um, the political rhetoric that's been, uh, that's surrounded uh, refugees uh, has made it really challenging. And, and um, if I'm being really candid, I've seen some Christian leaders and some churches that have in those moments have shrunk back. And, and this is a church, uh, like other churches, that has agreed to say, we're going to pursue and see what the gospel looks like in this. And so uh, that's been really encouraging. Some of my own, my own story, uh, you know, I, I don't have the first-generation immigrant story. I tell people I, you know, I, I grew up um, in the faraway land of Marin County, California, <laughs> impoverished community. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, oh, yeah. And, uh, and so I grew up in that context— um, Kind of far away from much of the diversity and and the uh, the, the the multinational uh, context that a lot of people are accustomed to. Uh, I I there was probably three uh, a couple of experiences as I was growing up uh, where I grew up um, uh, in San Rafael, 
Uh, I would often go with my dad down to the place they worked. My parents were group home managers for ladies with developmental disabilities. And we would drive uh, through San Rafael, through a part of San Rafael called the Canal District, and see a lot of day laborers, a lot of individuals down in that. Here, here you have one of the most affluent counties uh, in the nation. And in the midst of that context, out of the corner of my eyes, like I started to catch this glimpse of another world that existed amongst individuals who were not born here in the United States, but, but made their way here somehow. But I, but I didn't really have much of a story. I didn't have much of an uh, engagement with, with that community. Uh, years later, after I graduated from high school, a friend of mine got me a job at a software manufacturer. And, uh, and I remember getting a job, and this is also in, in Marin, and uh, I was working on the assembly floor. And I get up there, and, uh, and I'm fairly tall. You might see that, but I'm like Lance. <laughs> I'm 6'4". And uh, I, I get up there, and it's myself and probably about 25 uh, Filipinos, from, all from Vallejo all carpooling over to work on the second floor of the software manufacturer and all, all first generation immigrants. And there's this completely different world that I was thrust into very, very uh, far away from my kind of suburban white, um, you know, uh, bubble that I was in. Mm -hmm. And, and I took that experience and I, I, I went off to Bible college uh, because I felt a call to go into ministry at that point and um, uh, went through that, uh, graduated, uh, came back to um, the Bay Area, and there I ended up serving as a youth pastor for four years. And then, uh, as I was thought I was getting ready to go back to seminary, 9-11 took place. And long story short, I decided to um, join the service. I have a lot of family uh, history in military service, and I felt, um, for a lot of the reasons that people did in that day and time, uh, compelled, and I decided to enlist. And uh, much to the uh, displeasure of my Especially my mom is like every mom would. <laughs> Moms are a little, <laughs> yeah. mom's a little yeah. protective, and like here's my son, the youth pastor, and you know now he's gonna. And then I then I joined a combat position of all things, and she's just almost. She was thrilled about that. We, I'm sure. we talked eventually, but it <laughs> took a little while. Um, no, she was great, uh, but uh, and this you know the journey that that would take me on. Within six months after completing basic, I was you know landing in Kuwait on a C five. Um, uh, you know, into this new world. Uh, and over the next several months, I would get more of an up-close and, and personal experience with the realities of war and conflict, um, where a lot of uncomfortable grayness resides that makes um, uh, it's difficult for people to understand when they're armchair quarterbacking uh, the world from half a world away. That's uh, so true. And, but I uh, prefer just to do that. But yeah, I know it's, it's, and I, and I was, I did it before, uh, you know, and then all of a sudden I realized, um, some, some pretty profound reason, um, uh, lessons from that. So that really began a process, um, uh, that God ignited both, uh, a, a huge passion in my heart. Uh, it aligned greatly with my family upbringing. We've always had kind of a, a heart and, a, and, and eyes for the marginalized, the misplaced in this world, those yeah. that typically get shoved to the side. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I was fortunate enough about six and a half uh, years ago that um, I saw an opening for a position at World Relief Sacramento, then as just a part-time church mobilizer. And I put the, I connect, God really, God connected the dots and said, you know, you, you have a love for the church. You think that, that God has a calling for the church to have a, a truly redemptive impact in this broken world. Um, you have a, a passion for the marginalized 
and you have you you have some experiences in understanding the realities of war and conflict and people that have had to flee that. So all of those kind of came together into this uh, me being led in this direction, and then I'm just joined with a. a, a you, some of you know them. I just got this amazing staff. They're just incredible, incredible people, including probably about a third of them that are refugees themselves. So yeah, wow. just, um, and they're the true, you know, heroes in, in the narrative and the story. That's fantastic. Yeah. L- let me, let me just clarify one thing real quick. And, and I need you to clarify it for me. Um, I've heard a lot of powerful teachings on this, but you could probably get to the heart of it. What's the difference between a refugee and an immigrant? Yeah, so you know, I mean, they're significantly different. They question. are. I mean, and the, probably the simplest way of, of identifying a difference between the two is that an immigrant, you know, embarks on that journey of their own volition, usually out of economic or relational reasons, to reunite with somebody. And there's there's avenues and there's there's stories with uh, with regards to that. They're incredibly important, and 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 an opportunity to engage in that in the future. I'm sure. Um, refugees, um, they, they don't have a choice. Uh, they, uh, their, well, their, their only choice, I should say, was just to live, uh, or to have any kind of semblance of a quality of life. In fact, you know, yesterday I was, I spent the afternoon with, uh, a Syrian family, uh, hearing their story, um, young family when they, especially when they fled Syria into Jordan, the child was maybe a few months old and they had a two and a half year old daughter, uh, both both girls, like I do. So whenever I run into families like that, that resonates pretty deeply with me as a father yeah, and having yeah. two two young girls. And uh, there's there was there was no other reason other than just to live. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I hope that's helpful. And no, I think yeah. that that's that's a huge clarification. We will be doing an upcoming podcast um, on immigration, mm-hmm. so we're going to yeah. be having that as its own discussion, you know, obviously we're a bit more on the refugee side of things. Sure. Yeah. And I think that maybe one of the things that, that sparks, so I'm, I'm a defender of the, the, the underdog. Mm-hmm. I, that's kind of already my spirit. I've always been that way and you are too. Right. So yeah, it gets me in trouble sometimes because I can get pretty feisty about it. Like yes. I, and then, I, then I, then I have to realize, okay, wait, I'm not, I'm not fighting these other group of people too. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the, the, the danger and the, the air that sometimes I can slip into as I become such a, a passionate advocate for the marginalized, yes. for the misplaced, that I, I can dehumanize the people who either knowingly or unknowingly are affecting negatively yes. that, that group's life. So I hear you. Yeah. For sure. And I think that one of the things that triggers us into this defensive mechanism is compassion for their current situation. So when you see two, I only have girls, right? I have two girls. So when you see two little girls and desperate parents going, my children are going to be killed and I want to protect my little girls and I have to flee. And then they get hit with all this garbage of, we don't like you. We don't want you. And that's causes this triggering, I think in the dad, in us where you go, whoa, 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 hold on. They've already gone through more pain than you're probably ever going to go through in your life. And now you're sweating them because you have some type of ideology that says they shouldn't be the same as you. 
that I think causes that big rise up. I call it. I kind of go into Iron Man mode, <laughs> where I just have rockets kind of come out yeah. from me, and and I become very angry. I become the Hulk. Yes. So. <laughs> okay. Good. Well, we're the Avengers somehow. Avengers somehow. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Um, so, I, but but once again, I think that underlying a lot of our conversations is the compassion and the reaction to someone being harmed and not seeking for them to be further harmed that I think a lot of people forget in this discussion. Right. I mean, I I think just realizing these are human beings, right? You sit and talk with a family. They're no longer the one million people who are displaced. They are this family. And completely back up what you guys are saying, you think how terrible it is to see your own children in pain, right? Like this morning because of one of my kids has a medical condition, I had to administer medicine to him that made him cry. Mm, And it was... And even just that, in the comfort of our, you know, 21st century America, all the medical help we have, and just how devastating that was as a parent, you look at these people who, who they didn't choose this. <laughs> they want to raise their kids. They want, they, they have similar goals and, and things they want for their family like we do. And here they are looking at the, they didn't wake up in the morning and think, you know what I'd really love to do is uproot my family and move halfway around the world. Right. Yes. And, and diving into that a little bit more, because I think that in order to have the ideology on the other side, you have to justify some of it. So, um, and for me to step into those shoes, right, because there's always some type of racist in me, there's always something trying to emerge in me, right? So like the tale of three Kings, you either have King Saul emerging out of you or King David, you know what I'm saying? And we have this tension inside. So I'm not trying to pretend like I'm Mr. Pure. We're all wrestling against the flesh. I'm selfish just like everybody else. But I think that in, in that justification process, we'll go to some crazy places in our heads. So we'll do things like, well, you shouldn't have ever lived in that region in the first place. A war-torn region. Well, you shouldn't have, you know, you should have just moved to another place. Well, you didn't need to have yourself in that situation. Well, you shouldn't have had your family. You start having to justify why you're okay being rude to that person. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And trying to make them a stat as opposed to realizing, okay, so I was born here, wherever that country is, and the government started making decisions that I was not privy to. I cannot overthrow my government because, I mean, we've tried. In the past, whatever, you know, if you're, let's say you're in a, um, in Syria or you're in somewhere that the Egypt where there's been a lot of tension, you go, listen, we tried, I, I've tried to bring reform. It, I can't do it. Now, all of a sudden there's guns shooting everywhere and my little girls are going to get hit. So I have to make a decision. And my decision is we're going to run and we're going to run that direction. I think I think just starting in that place as opposed to creating this thing of it was all your fault that you're in the problem in the first place and now you want to come over and you want to take from us and you're de- you understand yeah. so anyway I'm just I'm preaching yeah. the choir I mean this is yeah. something you already know well I, I think the the beautiful thing about um, the beautiful thing about the golden rule is it forces us to identify with the other. And as soon as I'm making you statements, um, I'm no longer identifying as you. I've I've created a, a chasm between me and you, hmm. and uh, so the very nature of those kind of statements shows that we've already gotten off track, and yeah. I'm starting to dehumanize or or, or separate 
this sense of it's not it's not what I think you should do. It's what do you think I would want in that situation? You know, if I were in that situation, it's that that process of identification with, with the other completely changes the paradigm by which we start to judge people um, as soon as we've now identified with them. And uh, so, yeah. I, well, yeah. Kurt, let me add one other layer to that, because I think that that should be where we, that should be the bottom line of where we start from. I think there's another layer to it that I think that we have sometimes, I we make this problem or we make this mistake a lot with homeless discussions. We say, what would I want them to do for me in that situation? But things are not equal. So when you start talking about someone else's situation, especially like the homeless, you go, well, I would want an opportunity to get a job. And you go, well, that's because you're educated. Well, that's because you have a place to wash and brush your teeth. Well, that's because you have a mailbox in order to get the mail that you need to fill out the forms to get that job. Well, it's because you have, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So when we put ourselves and say, what would I want? Sometimes you go in your privileged position, this is what you would want. They may not even have that. So let's even jump into their shoes and say, if I was them, what would I need? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Just dropping yeah. it one level deeper, because yeah. for a lot of us, we would say, well, I would just want some play. You know, people start making up things like I'd want a place that was much more normal to me and I'd mm -hmm. want to be back in the Middle East. And, I, and you're like, would you <laughs> or would you pretty much go? I feel like everyone's shooting at me. I want to get as far away as yeah. possible. So, yeah. and, and, you know, I, I I interface with a lot of Christians globally. In my work with World Relief, I'm also connected with a global network called the Refugee Highway Partnership, which is a network of Christian churches and organizations working with forcibly displaced peoples. And in many cases, we're also talking about fellow fellow believers, fellow followers of Christ uh, that are, uh, some are making the decision to stay. Mm -hmm. Right. Some at their very own life. Some yeah. make the decision to leave. Um, and to there's no way that you and I, apart from that experience, can place ourselves no. in in that no position way. and judge that decision. Yeah. No. But either way, what do we know? We do know that that there's a very very clear biblical mandate uh, when it comes to those individuals who are sojourners in our midst, uh, and and that's so undeniable, um, and 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 so critical to to actually uh, us being in a position where God would receive our worship and our prayers yeah uh, that uh, that uh, hopefully these would be the things that we would we would major on first right so let me let me just let me just ask you this Kurt so a lot of people may not know that that Sacramento is actually a large resettlement area and and you're in the thick of it so largest yeah <laughs> what does world relief do practically yeah. I think just to help people sure. resettle Sure, and 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 I will clarify that it, actually, as of this this year, no city in the U.S. will receive more refugees in Sacramento, California. People do not know that. Wow. Now, wow. is that over, per, is that per capita or is that total number of the people? total number of people? Forty over be around forty five hundred refugees will resettle in Sacramento this year. Wow. And about um, probably around nineteen hundred of them will have been resettled through our office. Wow, that's fantastic! So um, th th there's there's a number of stories related to that, but uh, this the, when I look at that, I say okay, especially in in, 
in in my role and in, in working with World Relief and with churches in the area, I think okay, this is an opportunity for for the church uh, to really to rise up to this occasion, this historic moment, and say we're going to be there. Um, we're going to be there, showing radical uh, biblical hospitality and 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 learning and growing from our newest neighbors too. So what is what does some of that look like? Uh, it looks like everything from a church, um, you know, helping. Uh, furnish an apartment to picking up a family at the airport. Uh, you know, it's that's uh, that's a long journey. Uh, mm-hmm. You just got back from Uganda. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, traveling from halfway across the world is is exhausting when you do that with kids, and then you 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 realize that this is at the actually kind of at the end of a journey along the refugee highway that this individual and those families is finally realizing. I think we're in a safe place now. Um, well, you're holding your yeah, breath. Just, yeah, and, and, can't imagine. And, and there's plus there's all the 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 myth of uh, of America and, and like what's myth and what's reality. Streets and what's are paved with gold. Going to be like Arnold Schwarzenegger is yeah. going to shoot me. Yeah, exactly. What what, what is this going to be all about? Um, you know, and and to have somebody there to welcome you, to smile, to welcome you, to greet you, to shake your hand, and and uh, and then for individuals and refugees, whether families or not. To to see that 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 person there is we find out is is somebody who's a Christ follower who's just trying to be obedient to the the teachings of Jesus has a, just a tremendous impact on our community, um, and it goes on from there. Those are just the early stages. Uh, uh, it's not easy. It's definitely not easy. This this is well beyond. Uh, this there's nothing wrong with this, but this is well beyond painting schools. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this this is engaging. Uh, with real people who've been through an awful lot of trauma, uh, trying to to struggle to make a new life here in America. In many cases, starting completely over from scratch, and uh, and so uh, there's a lot of opportunities that follow from that to help individuals uh, experience life in their community, from education to employment to ESL to cultural orientation. Um, it's just a sense of genuine friendship with people in their community that aren't from their own home country. Those are all just ways in which churches can get engaged. Yeah. I, I want to cite one other thing because I thought this article that you sent was pretty powerful. Yeah. That by the time they get to you, Kurt, the the process is years. Yeah. Um, and this whole thing about, oh my gosh, we're scooping up thousands of refugees randomly and in the same day we're dropping them off in Sacramento and they're on a bus somewhere (laughs) is simply not true. So this article went through and was talking about the process. And I just want to highlight a process that was talking about even just Syrian refugees. Sure. And this is what they go through. Mm -hmm. So number one is registration with the United Nations. Number two, an interview with the United Nations. Number three, refugee status is granted by the United Nations. Number four, referral for resettlement in the United States. States. So in other words, the United Nations decides if the person fits the definition of a refugee or whether to refer the person to a country for resettlement. Only the most vulnerable are referred, accounting for fewer than 1% of refugees worldwide. Some people spend years waiting in refugee camps. Number five, interview with State Department contractors. Number six, first background check, check. Number seven, higher level background check for some. Eight, another background check. In other words, the refugee's refugee's name is run through law enforcement and intelligence databases for terrorist or criminal history. Some go through a higher level clearance before they can continue. A third background check was introduced in 2008 for Iraqis, but has now expanded to all refugees ages 14 to 65. 
Number nine, first fingerprint screening, photo taken. Ten, second fingerprint screening. Eleven, third fingerprint screening. And they're run against Homeland Security databases through the FBI, all watch list information, past immigration encounters, any prior applications for any embassies, and they're collected against the Defense Department. Number 12, case reviewed at United Nations Immigration Headquarters. Number 13, some cases reviewed for additional things. There's two more steps for Syrians. Number 14, extensive in-person interview with Homeland Security Officer. Number 15, Homeland Security approval is required. 16, screening for contagious diseases. 17, cultural orientation class. 18, matched with an American resettlement agency. 19, multi-agency security check before leaving for the United States. 20, final security check at the American airport. Oh, and then they see you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a bit of a process. And for those who are interested, the article that Lance quoted from uh, on our Facebook Live uh, broadcast, we we put a link to that article in the comments section. It's yeah. an incredibly extensive process. And the, the notion that our refugee acceptance program is broken or needs to become more secure, I'm not totally sure where that comes from, but it, that's a very difficult position to justify. Yeah, I, I mean... It- Probably the the number one statistic, and this is we're kind of getting into statistics, and there's a lot of stories surrounding it, but but it is pretty profound. Um, first of all, I would say if you're looking for a perfect system for anything, um, just I don't know, don't leave your house, <laughs> don't go anywhere, don't do yeah, anything. Your house is still broken. Yeah, yeah, your house is still. I just it's this side of life, it isn't going to happen. So, but we we think that you know a, a reasonable amount of of um, concern for security is not. Is not um, mutually those that and compassion. They're not mutually exclusive. And so then we look at the the history of the refugee admissions program, and specifically since 1980, that no U.S. citizen has died in the United States at the hands of a formerly resettled refugee carrying out a a terrorist attack on domestic soil. That's um, encompassing about 3.3 million people. So that's a pretty amazing track record. Now. I can address fears like that. Now, that's I, almost 40 years ago. That's yeah. yeah, almost 40 years ago. So that's a pretty tremendous record. Now, I, I, I sometimes I'll we, we can talk about those things. I always like to to push back on it as well because, of course, we as followers of Christ, uh, I, I always tell people, you know, um, safety is not the operative principle in the gospel. Yeah. Uh, if if it was, then there would have never been an incarnation. And we would have never had an, uh, a savior who died on a cross. Yeah. Uh, and he 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 actually pretty explicitly tells us that he's calling us to a similar ministry, right. uh, a similar calling. He even invites us to take up our crosses and follow him. So if we're looking for, uh, especially from a standpoint of our Christian faith, if we're looking for uh, a safe faith, this is the wrong one for you. You need to move on to something else. Right. Uh, something probably more materialistic or what have you out there. Uh, and in all of this kind of um, – now, one of the things that I know that we like to share is – is and some of the things that we've talked about hit on this is how do I go through a process of understanding? Because it's a, it's a, very, it's a very difficult um, emotional issue, again, highly politicized. And what's a process that, that you can go to? There's no way on the, on the course – there's – there's there's people listening right now, who run the full gamut of perspectives, um, and I get that. 
and and I I probably even want to say it's important that my perspective be willing to be challenged and to grow mm-hmm. just as much as the listener to this and, and the three of us the, the three of us here in this room. Yeah. However, I think that there's some things that we can all agree to that will help us get to that that goal of of wanting to honor Christ in our lives. Um, we focus on four spiritual disciplines. Um, and you could apply this to any difficult crisis, any any human crisis or issue, and that is that we approach it prayerfully, biblically, factually, and relationally. Some of the things that we've talked about are factually. It's important that we push beyond the rhetoric that we hear on TV, in the news, newspapers, what have you, and we do our best to to really have an understanding of what reality is. But that's only one of the four disciplines. Uh, I love that the people of God in the scriptures consistently um, just pray. I call it the clueless prayer. It, it's God, we don't know what to do. You see it happen throughout. They do it collectively and individually. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what to do. Just show me. And I think if we can always at least start from that place and and with a genuine heart of openness, like, okay, God, I don't know. I have all these fears, all of these emotions. I'm hearing these conflicting messages about refugees. I care about the safety of my family too, and and yet, and I kind of I care about them too. But I'm I'm confused. All this. Can, let's, let's at least agree to pray for for God's direction. Secondly, uh, biblically, what what does the scriptures have to say? And, and we we often refer to the Bible. Uh, it's been the Bible's been referred to before as the immigrants' handbook. When you mm-hmm. think about it, it's it's latent throughout all of scriptures is the journeying of God's people and of people and how that, that results in the redemptive story and, and God coming is is an act of immigration in and of itself, the incarnation. So understanding the scriptures, the factually, but then the last one is absolutely, in my opinion, is the most important. That's relationally. No individual, no follower of Jesus will ever form a Christ honoring response to a difficult issue without having a personal relationship with whoever that issue is talking about. Yeah. In this case, refugees. You mentioned homeless. You could talk about at-risk youth. You can talk about race, racism. Like if you don't have personal relationships and a listening posture in those relationships to those groups, you're never going to form a Christ-honoring response. So just for the people who are listening to this broadcast, you we might all be you might be at a different place. You might have a different understanding than even some of the things you've heard on here. I want to invite you to walk through that kind of process here at Bridgeway or whatever church that you're participating in. Uh, if you're a pastor, I think it's a great process to walk walk this through with your congregation. And I think that as we do that in humility, we're going to end up in a place um, that's far more likely to honor Christ and his commandments and his heart for us as, as a people of God. It's so interesting to me and that was so I love that process. It's so interesting to me how much gets lost when we remove the relational component. That all of a sudden if if you are just a person on a screen who's Facebook profile I'm looking at, or if you're just somebody talked about in a in a news story or spoken of positively or negatively in an opinion piece, I can form all of these very narrow opinions of you that completely take into 
failed to take into account kind of the totality of your existence and all of the the challenges you face and the places that we might be similar and the the ways that you might have come to your point of view or the the values you actually hold versus the values I've been told that that you hold and and it's just it's easy to come to these conclusions based on reading the news based on kind of living in our own echo chambers and I, I suspect that the reason that a lot of us don't listen and I suspect I've got or I mean I admit excuse me I've got so much room to grow in this area that it's just hard. It's hard to sit with those who are different than us, to humanize them, to kind of step off of these pedestals of superiority we create for ourselves, to just listen to somebody, to recognize the image of God in them and and seek to understand them where they are. I think that's a hard thing to do. So I, I want to take. I, I know that we don't have a, a ton of time, but I I want to I want to turn the corner a little bit on something here. Mm-hmm. Um, to to be fair, because one of the things about my personality that is both a blessing and a curse is that I split hairs. I see things in very care into care categories. I I'm not a broad stroke guy. I'm not a stereotype guy. I'm not a everybody's this guy. Mm-hmm. Everybody's in little tiny niche categories. Everyone's very unique. And I think in this issue, one of the things that I've run into is that I, I think that we need to parse out the refugee situation into its various categories so we can have healthy dialogue. For example, I think it's one thing to talk about the refugee situation from practical policy. What's best business for America to handle? What is best for economics to handle? So for example... It is very fair to look and say, whether we're talking about immigration or we're talking about refugees, if we're all in a lifeboat and people are swimming towards you, you can take so many people into your boat until you capsize and then the boat's no longer useful. That is actually an economic or a practical discussion to have. What are we able to do? And I think that a lot of people jump over into that one and they start arguing. Hmm. There is a different discussion, which is theoretical or theological, which is, let's say I had a big enough boat. Do I want that person getting in my boat? You understand what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Yeah. And so for me, I feel like, can we please start slicing this thing out and talking about what we're really trying to talk about? Because it's one thing to say, okay, I have compassion for their situation. Now, right now, how do I get them safe? Can I can I get them in my boat today? No, but how do I get them in a safe boat right now? You know what I mean? So, I, but the conversation tends to get so jumbled up together. You have politics, you have economics, you have this racial superiority. You have all this stuff lumped together, and everyone's talking over each other, and it's not being spliced out. So, for example, as far as compassion to somebody being displaced forcibly from their home. The idea that somebody would argue we need to help them is asinine to me. Like, I don't even understand where, where that argument would be. But I think there's lots of room for argument about what is a practical policy and how should things be done and what about the economics of it and what is appropriate. Sure. I think that there's all kinds of room for debate. So well, anyway, just Yeah, well, let, and, and let's uh, – I'll be really concrete in that uh, um, because, you know – we we talked about idolatry earlier. Uh, well, let's talk about the idolatry of America. Okay, we are not the solution 
to this broken world. As a, I'm seeing we as as a as a nation. Mm-hmm. Okay, the uh, God speaks. Jesus speaks about the church, his people, followers of Jesus who are who are exemplifying love of God and love of neighbor, being a city on a hill. But that's that's who he's talking about there. And and so when we even talk about the the global refugee crisis, and we talk about you know twenty you know, 65 million people displaced and 20 plus million that fled their country. Uh, it, it very clearly the solution, the, the, the solution for all 21.3 million individuals is not going to be, is they, they all need to come to America. Everyone like in Sacramento. Are, like we are the solution for everything. That's, that's idolatry in and of itself. Uh, and it's, and it's impractical. So I, I I really appreciate. It. I think that's 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 an excellent. If if at first we can at least check our hearts, yeah. and get our hearts in the right place, right, then we can have rational conversation about okay, what's the best way to address this this very profound urgent need, and in some cases that'll be stabilizing people where they're at. In mm-hmm. some cases that'll be that'll be doing some serious gut checks and and looking at. At kind of our historical foreign policies and and how that might be impacting the the stability of regions. Like yeah. there's there's all there's all those are all important conversations. And some individuals, this opportunity to come to the United States or to go to other countries is going to be the life saving opportunity that they need. And right. and let's we can have those conversations, but especially as followers uh, of Christ and the Scriptures, let's make sure that our hearts are very clear on this in terms of God's heart for those who are uniquely vulnerable, including refugees. I mean, you talked earlier about safety mm-hmm. and how as as Christ followers, safety is not our, our highest goal. We're not anti-safety. We're not into being recklessly dangerous uh, or anything like that. And the desiring the safety of your family is perfectly fine. I desire the, the safety of mine, of course. Yeah. But, but I do think that that question of heart and heart motivation is so important because it helps us to clarify what values are we bringing to this conversation. And if the value is I want to love my neighbor as myself, my value is I want to elevate the importance of the vulnerable, then we can approach this complex issue saying, okay, I, I'm willing to sacrifice personally. I want to I want to be a part of the solution, whether that's here, whether that's something overseas, whether that's uh, you know, keep mm-hmm. figuring out a way to keep them where they are. Um, and, you know, to your point, Lance, I think that the, the lifeboat analogy is important um, because those who would say we either keep everyone off or invite everyone in, I mean, that's doing what we so often do with these incredibly complex issues, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is we try to try to turn them into all or nothing. But but I do think the heart as Christ followers, and not just to say, oh, my heart's in the right place, so I don't have to do anything, <laughs> but allowing our heart to be driven by it's not about i'm not driven by my own sense of superiority or entitlement i'm not driven by preserving safety at all costs but i'm driven by god is with the vulnerable god is with the refugee and the sojourner how, how can i leverage whatever influence and resources i have mm-hmm. to seek yeah. to be a part of that solution and yeah. so i want to ask you one other thing uh kurt is that when it comes to refugee resettlement there there's tons of fear one of the biggest things that I've heard from folks as I just in my own personal advocacy have advocated for uh, you know, greater refugee resettlement in the United States is I hear a lot of fear in people. And I, when someone's afraid, I don't want to just tell them, hey, don't be afraid. 
I want yeah. to acknowledge the reality of their fear, but at the same time, all of us have fears that are maybe not as based in fact as they could be. Mm-hmm. So what would you say to somebody who says, okay, listen, I want to help. I have a heart for these people, but I'm afraid. I hear things in the news, this and that. Uh, what would you say to a person like that? I, I would, again, I'd probably go back to those those disciplines and especially that last one. Uh, push past the they yeah. and those uh, to meet real people and, and let that inform. I, 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 I understand fear. Uh, you know, as, as I mentioned, some of my, part of my journey was spending a couple of years in the army and I did a tour of duty in Iraq in 2003. And, uh, I can remember very, very clearly, um, one of the first nights of the opening of that conflict and several scud missiles were shot down immediately over our camp. Um, in the middle of the night, let me tell you, that'll wake you up. And and remembering, you know, just sitting there is some, you know, it's going to land on me. Is this, you know, I, so I, I've experienced like physical fear before of like this, my life is literally in danger. Um, now, when you're in those kind of situations or you're in other situations, it's not life-threatening fear, but maybe it's fear to a, a place of emotional safety. Uh, we always have to temper that with wisdom and with the scriptures and with and with personal relationship. And so if we can if we can commit to that, uh, that's that's probably the, the the best step that an individual can take. If they're starting to feel fear, fear is it's very natural. Um, I couldn't say in that moment that like, stop it, don't be afraid. What what's wrong that's with you? That's foolish. Yeah, it doesn't work. No. The the question is is how do I how do I respond now in in a place of fear? Uh, you know, I, I I think this is profound because again, going back to the life of Christ, and you think of that moment uh, um, the night before. Uh, I think he, his prayers expressed fears. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, think about that. Jesus was afraid. Yes. What who what genuine human being would not have been afraid knowing? that I'm about to be executed in one of the most horrific ways possible. Yeah. So, but there was something that he decided to do in the midst of that fear. He prayed out to God, the Father, right, in this mysterious way that that happens. He he recognizes the unique will of God, and I'm going to commit myself to this because I know that as I commit myself to that which is good, even through pain and suffering, it's going to accomplish something better than had I never left in that place, if I had I stayed in that place of fear and not sacrificed. Yeah. So I think those are the kind of we we need to maybe just look back to the the author of our faith, right? And just look to that example and say, okay, this is where I need to start. Now let me take the next steps and see where that leads me. So so you jumped right into the subject that I was really was was weighing on my heart all this time is I believe that whenever fear is is present it's, you have to shift into wisdom mode. So wisdom is taking information, looking at the big picture. You're looking at something that is larger, right? You're looking, taking God into account. Like for us, uh, fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So it's knowing He's there. So that 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 restructures every conversation. But I think that uh, part of what what we have to ask is, what are we afraid of losing? What what is the fear about? So a lot of times we immediately jump and we go, I'm afraid that a terrorist is going to get through. 
okay, and so you're going, I'm afraid thousands of people are going to get bombed and we're going to have a, a 9-11 all over again. That's one type of fear. The other one, if when you start digging under it, is there a fear of going, you may take my job? Is there a fear of you may make, make me have less money? Is the fear of you may disrupt my status quo? I may have different looking people walking through my neighborhood, and I don't know if I want that. When you start naming out what are the fears and then laying them out before the Lord, um, we have a security team here at church. Mm-hmm. I have a security team that mm-hmm. follows me around. Uh, does that mean I don't trust the Lord, or does that mean I'm using wisdom? Um, because here's the thing, we're also making decisions for other people. It's one thing for you to go, man, for me and my family, hey, Lord, whatever, if we all get murdered, that's cool. Okay, (laughs) if you're the one watching the gate... (laughs) <laughs> you understand? <laughs> you're, hopefully you're not on my security team, yeah. right? Because, not the perspective we because need Because that's not very effective for me. <laughs> so you're making a decision for other people, and you're going, what if they're not ready to sacrifice? They're not at that place. Yeah. You're allowing in, in their opinion, danger. So I want to just zero in on one element, and then I'll try to go quiet, which is very hard for me. <laughs> but um, the number one concern that I have found is that the refugees is an open door for Islamist extremists to get through, or just straight Muslims at all. The big thing, and you're going, whoa, 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 hold on. Are you concerned that they're bringing physical harm? Are you worried they're bringing religious harm? Are you worried that they're bringing cultural harm? Like, what, what, what exactly are we worried about again? But I hear that more often than not, that Islam as a religion— is you know it's more violent it's blah 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 and so re- refugees of going i appreciate i'm helping you out because you're in a bad place but when you get brought in here you're bringing in a dangerous element into the country that's probably what i hear more than anything else so just wanted to hear yeah. your thoughts on that well there's another way of looking at that i know we're we're running short on time but uh you know we often return to the parable of the good samaritan and yeah. I don't know if you've read or not, but there's a really fantastic uh, version of that that's come out, a retelling of it. It's called The Parable of the Good Muslim. Hmm. Uh, because I, I think that we need to think in terms of discipleship. So when I, the, the process of me learning to, to follow Jesus more closely. And we typically, especially kind of in evangelical culture in America, we think of that other people outside of us, they're the objects of our discipleship. Like they're they're the individuals that we get to test out what following Jesus looks like. We rarely think in terms of that this individual is not they're not they're not only just they're not there to oppose, but they're there to actually model and teach me what it needs what it means to follow Jesus. And if you understand the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus was actually saying that somebody who was outside of their community was actually instructing them on better on how to love Jesus. So I say this at times, and I, I do this to kind of jolt people a little bit, but that is that, that the American church needs Muslims to teach them how to follow Jesus. And Amen. I don't mean that yeah. in the sense wow. of like, uh, they're, they're, they're there <laughs> for us to practice following Jesus. It's like, no, some of them are following Jesus better than we are and so when I, I have good friends who are Muslim refugees here in Sacramento, I can get, I guarantee you they are teaching me almost every day 
how to follow Jesus better than sometimes I learn on Sunday mornings or around my other fellow Christians. So let's not think in terms of the others being oppositional. Jesus in that parable is actually teaching us that we need them in order to learn how we can follow Jesus better. Yeah, that's good. That is powerful. Wow. That is great stuff. You guys are both really smart, especially oh, no. especially, especially you, Kurt. Oh, yes. uh, man, just so we're clear. <laughs> gosh. Uh, gosh, this has been such a great conversation. Uh, just so thrilled, Kurt, to be able to have had, had you on and, and so grateful for your wisdom. If, if folks are interested in learning more about World Relief or they want to follow you online or learn more about what you do, what are some ways that they can learn about World Relief or get a hold of you or certainly, all that stuff? Give, it, give the us the commercial. Certainly the worldreliefsacramento.org if you want to learn more about World Relief more broadly. It's just worldrelief.org. Uh, there's some great avenues. And if you're here at Bridgeway, there's, um, there's, uh, there's individuals who are already engaged. And uh, I'm trying to remember the church coordinator for... For Bridgeway, but I'm blanking on that. But if you're not uh, part of Bridgeway, uh, um, just contact us, reach out to us, yeah. uh, and uh, and find a way for us to have a begin a conversation with you. There's also sometimes you write articles as well, just mm-hmm. out of your own heart, and sometimes people need to hear that perspective. So is there also a way that they can probably you just on finding Facebook? me on Facebook and yeah. and I I do whether it's something I write or it's something I just I find that I think it's. It's important. Uh, I think it's a great way to uh, to uh, hopefully I'm 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 just kind of uh, stirring the pot a little bit and getting you to think a little bit more about. But you like, but you uh, spell your name wrong. I do. So, That's true. K-I-R-T, we do need to clarify. K I R T Lewis and so K I R T L E W I S and you can just look me up on on Facebook and I'd be glad to friend you and follow me along and I'll follow you too. Hey, all right. right. Very good. Uh, Great. Fantastic. Well, hey, thanks, guys, for the time. Thank you to all of you for listening. We will be back with you in. Thank you for listening to Engaging uh, Culture, a podcast by Bridgeway Christian Church. If you enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening. Music is used under the Creative Commons license and is provided by Dexter Britton.